Today, I'm speaking with Kate Berkeley, who is from Kansas City, Missouri. She's a junior at Bowdoin College, and she is a government and legal studies major with a minor in English. And she was also my extra fabulous student assistant last semester. Um, and I cannot sing her praises highly <laughs> enough. Um, I'm so sad that she won't let me hire her again for anything else. <laughs> and um, there is a person at Bowdoin College that I'm dedicating this um, podcast to. And I think that person knows who she is because I had sort of fallen off the podcast train and I recently got received a message from someone who told me the impact that listening to the podcast was having in her life. So that person inspired me to get back on and prioritize uh, my podcasts. So I'm going to ask you three questions. What's most important to you? What does a liberal arts education mean to you? And what do you wish your professors knew about you? And I'll be responsible for making sure we hit all three of those Great. in about in under half an hour. <clears throat> so let's start with what is most important to you? I think recently what I've realized is most important to me, especially in terms of thinking about Bowdoin, is my time. Um, I This year has been the first year that I've really cut back on a lot of things that I was doing um, as a sophomore or as a first year and have tried to really think about what do I enjoy doing at Bowdoin and how do I do that. Um, and a lot of that honestly has come with doing less extracurricularly and realizing how much I love school and I love sitting in the library and reading um, and thinking about things or even just, you know, I love sitting in my house with my friends and talking to them late into the night and I think that those are all things that I have to consider time when I decide to do them. Um, and I feel like now as a second semester junior, I really f am recognizing that my time at Bowdoin is limited. Um, and so I really am trying to prioritize making the most of my time here and not letting that be rooted so much in all the things that I can do at Bowdoin, but what I enjoy doing at Bowdoin, hmm. if that makes sense. Yes. I'm curious if um, you met the people who you enjoy spending time with in extracurricular activities, mm -hmm. um, but then once you found your tribe yeah. that you were able to cut back on the activity, or did you find them in other ways through other means? I think I actually had a really unique experience at Bowdoin in that I, um, in that I actually met the majority of the people that I'm still very close friends with my first and within my first few months at Bowdoin as mm. a first year. I just got so lucky. I met um, one of my best friends on my Prio trip and then another one on, she lived on the floor below me in Winthrop. Um, and so I really wanted to stay with them. And we've actually joked with each other that we like really don't do anything similar and always are like, how would we have met each other if we hadn't just <laughs> bumped into each other? Um, but outside of that, I would say that a lot of my friends have come from the outing club um, where I did leadership training last spring. Um, and that's certainly a nice way to bond with everyone. And that's actually one of the activities I found that I really do enjoy doing and want to keep doing. Um, but really, I think if anything, and maybe this has helped make my decision in terms of 
cutting back is that I found that most of my friends are not within my activities. Like I certainly have friends within my extracurriculars, um, but usually doing my extracurriculars meant cutting out time to spend with my friends mm, who I mm-hmm. feel so close to. Um, and I think that helped make my decision easier. Was this decision about what's most important to you and loving the learning, mm-hmm. um, was that part of your decision to um, not go abroad? Because you had planned to go right. to spend a semester abroad, just a semester you had planned on. Right, right? exactly. Um, and then in the summer, you had a change of heart and mm-hmm. realized that you wanted to do and that you wanted to stay. Uh, can you talk a little? Because I think so many people um, feel like um, studying away is just the thing you do. Right, absolutely. And um, especially on a small campus like mm-hmm. Bowdoin, I think it's a way for students to re-energize their friendships and their connections at Bowdoin by having outside experiences and then coming back. Mm-hmm. Um, but I know that students have a little bit of trouble sometimes if they aren't sure that that's what they want to do. So can you do a little talking about your thoughts and feelings as you oh, were yeah. um, making that decision? Oh, absolutely. It was a very, um, you sort of saw the summer portion of it, but it was a, a, a perhaps a year long back and forth of okay. what I wanted to do. And Kate Mile, I think she's the most wonderful person because she held my hand the entire way, even <laughs> though I thought she thought I was crazy. Um, but I, I do think, I really related to this idea that I felt like I needed to go abroad. Um, my older sister, who's 10 years older, is someone that I just immensely look up to, and she went abroad. Um, and so I think she went abroad when I was in fifth grade. Mm-hmm. So I think from the time I was 11, I just assumed that that was what you were supposed to do, that you went abroad. Um, and so coming into Bowdoin, I also just always thought, oh yeah, I'll go abroad junior year. Um, but first it became a really difficult decision between when I wanted to go abroad. And then I realized that there really wasn't a program that I was just dying to do. Um, at the time I actually was still an, I was an English major and, um, the English department has some restrictions on where you can go. And I had actually worked abroad the summer after my senior year of high school. And I lived in Paris for three months and I felt like I had had this really incredible opportunity to, you know, grow my language skills and immerse myself in a culture and also to live independently, which I think is by far the most important thing I gained from that experience. Mm -hmm. And, figuring out how to move to a new city and not know anybody and realize that I was going to be okay, (laughs) which is a great experience right before college. Um, But so I I didn't really want to go anywhere that was, you know, I didn't really want to go to Europe because I wanted to do something that would push me in a new way. Mm -hmm. Um, But I then realized that all these programs in India, for example, which is where I was planning to go we're not as focused in what I really enjoy studying, which is the humanities, um, especially English literature and um, political philosophy. And when the more I thought about it, I think I realized that I just really only have this four-year period to 
like be in college and have these, you know, eight academic semesters and when I can just really be a student and engross myself in what I'm learning, which is what I've always loved doing. Um, and that was certainly a huge factor in deciding that I shouldn't go abroad because I never really felt like there was a program that was right. And I wasn't ready. I think a lot of my peers needed a break from Bowdoin and I have never felt that way. In fact, I've always complained to my advisors, I think since I was a first year that I just don't have time to take all the classes that I want hmm. to. Um, Cause there's just, there's so many and there's so many wonderful professors here who I want to get to know. Um, and so I think it was that paired with a deep connection to place that I feel here at Bowdoin. Um, that I, I really, I've, it's a really different environment from where I grew up and I love it here. And I, I've found that I really think I've kind of even come into myself here in a way that I never could in high school. Um, and I just didn't want to take, go, or miss out on one of those semesters when I wasn't super excited about what I was going to be doing abroad. Do you envision yourself staying in Maine? This is a very pertinent question of late. Um, I've been thinking about this a lot. I, I could see myself here. I I asked because you said I'm so connected to place. Yeah. And I didn't interpret that as just the Bowdoin campus, but as m- yeah. Maine or the coast or being able to access mountains and woods and all of those things. Absolutely. I... I do feel a really deep connection to Maine. And I think that Maine is really interesting because I feel like from a lot of people that I've talked to who are from the state or maybe even just what I've observed that, you know, there's a strong sense of what it means to be a Mainer. And for that reason, like, I will never be a Mainer because I'm, I'm not from here. Right, nor, um, I, nor I. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but I do, I really, I love this place. And I could see myself here. I, I have a desire to maybe leave for a little while and... You know, I've never lived in the South or the West, and I would also love to live abroad after I graduate. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I could see myself coming back here. I really, I like, I mean, Portland's a wonderful city. Um, and, I mean, I, and I also love having the access, as you said, to the coast and to all of these mountains and this just, like, beautiful wilderness, or I don't know if I could call it wilderness, but, like, access to the outdoors. Mm-hmm. Um which has become increasingly important to me and um, has made me realize that it might be really hard for me to move back to Kansas City, um, mm. even as an adult, just because that's something I really value is having that access to the outdoors. Um, but it's certainly on the short list of places yes. to live after I graduate. <laughs> <laughs> but so you are going uh, abroad to the West yeah. this summer. So tell me more about that. So... I'm working for Wilderness Adventures this summer, and uh, Wilderness Adventures is a company that takes middle school and high school students on trips all around the world, but primarily in the Rocky Mountain West um, and Alaska. And I did Wilderness Adventures when I was 16, and it was just this really incredible experience of, it was the first time that I, it was really the first time I'd ever gone camping. And the first time I'd ever gone camping was on an 18-day backcountry excursion. But I loved it. So it okay, something clicked. That is, an immer- <laughs> that is an immersive experience. Yes. <laughs> I had no idea what I was getting myself into. But it really was this, like, it was the first time, I think, that I encountered people who were not just doing sort of the go to college, get a job, stay in that job, move somewhere, you know. And mm. people who were really moving around and trying different things and we're talking about you know times that they'd lived out of their 
you know, driven across the country for a job they didn't know if they had, and then they figured something out when they got there. Um, and that was really, it was cool to me. I, I had never, it was inspiring, and I'm still really close with my leaders. And so um, as someone who's really passionate about both the outdoors and working with young people, I'm really excited to work there this summer and, you know, take, I think probably middle school kids is what they'll pamper with um, on these trips and, I don't know, see what that's like. I'm, I'm also interested to see if this either really turns me on to outdoor, working in outdoor ed or turns me off because I know right. it's like such challenging and exhausting and, but also deeply rewarding work. I am so excited to hear when you come back what your summer has been like. Well, you did Outward I did. Bound. I yeah. I didn't do Outward Bound, but oh. I had some. Um, I when I worked in an alternative to incarceration program, I took New York City kids uh, out hiking and mm-hmm. doing some uh, rowing on the Hudson River too. But um, that was a little bit more minor. Yeah, it was more minor, but also very intense because yeah. for these. For these kids, mm-hmm. um, you know, getting out and um, walking into the woods and learning that you have to walk as far back out as you walked in yeah. and that you can't, there's no cab to hell, there's no um, subway to go hop on, there's no pizza on the corner. <laughs> and so what are you going to do? Yeah. Like, there's only one answer to what we're going to do mm-hmm. right now. So, Yeah. Um, I loved that. So what does a liberal arts education mean to you? Mm. Um, This is another thing I've been thinking about a lot because, so for podcast purposes, I should say that I um, started off as an English major and a gov minor. And then this year, um, the benefit of me actually not going abroad is that I was able to switch my major to spend, to be in the gov department as a major and then concentrate within political theory. But I kept my English minor um, because I love English. Um, So I think one thing that's been really cool, I was talking to my roommates last night, is I have loved how interdisciplinary my education is. Um, You know, last semester I was taking three environmental studies-based classes, but in three different departments, government, history, and English. And at one point, there was a two-week period when I was reading the same reading in all three of those classes, which is just an incredible opportunity to explore the same ideas from different angles. What were you reading in all the classes? Um, Bill Cronin's uh, The Trouble with Wilderness, which is, I really like that essay. Um, But it was just all about sort of how we conceive of wilderness Hmm. um, as sort of this mythic, like, untouched land thing, which doesn't really exist. And we were talking about that from a historical angle. That was why you were uncomfortable using the term wilderness. You said... (laughs) I don't know if I can say that. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And and so, I mean, that just speaks. And then this semester, for example, especially now that I'm really concentrating in theory, I've become so aware of how these thinkers have influenced all of these different dinf- in, uh, disciplines. Like, even in your, I've read um, Hannah Arendt now mm. in a Gov and an English class, and you're teaching it this semester. Yes. Um, and I think the reason I switched to theory really... I promise I'll get to the actual question, but uh, you've already covered it. You can go anywhere you want. Um, But the reason I switched to theory is because I wanted to really get at the core of these ideas that a lot of the people I was reading in English are writing about. But I was like, well, what are what are they like at the core talking about? And then Mm. from there, I just wanted to have that foundation. But that's been so true, and I feel like it's given me this amazing insight 
into all these other subjects, even sociology and education. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, And I think that sort of, like, exemplifies why liberal arts educations are so valuable because it gives you these frameworks and these tools and this foundation to understand everything that you do outside of that education as well. And I think that as someone who studies in the humanities, I like, I think something I can say that I have learned so much in these years here and like throughout high school really is like how people work and think and how they think differently. Mm. Um, And I, I just am so grateful for that. And especially in the work I do with um, my mentoring group or even in the outdoors and just anytime I connect with someone, like it's easy for me to think of like, oh, like, well, what drives them to think that way? Or, you know, what character do they remind me of or, or something mm. like that? Um, but I just think it's it's totally this education of the entire person. Because I, I just think, like, I can always go out and like learn facts or like learn how to be an accountant, which is something I don't think I'd be very good at. But like, <laughs> for example, like that's something, and I'm fortunate that I have parents who really said that this is how you should be educated and this is really valuable. Mm. But I think a liberal arts education is about, again, like having tools and frameworks and foundations that sort of allow you to more easily learn and understand other things that you'll confront throughout Mm. your life, not just in work either. Mm. I'm curious, I don't know if this is relevant at all, but I just, it popped into my head as you were saying that. do you look at your professors and think about what characters they remind you of from literature? <laughs> Such a good question. Um, I think that I have maybe more archetypes than anything. Okay. Do you want to tell me what some of your archetypes are? Paul Franco is like the perfect... I guess I think of them in terms of professor archetypes, but like Paul Franco, who's my advisor, um, is very much the, like, inspiring and, like, quietly brilliant person who is an amazing listener. Um, And, gosh, I'm trying to think about how I would actually frame him. But I think, like, he's that professor, right? And then Tess Chikolakal is this crazy intimidating but crazy brilliant and professor who pushes you beyond any limits you thought you could surpass (laughs) um, or even existed. And, yeah, I think that's how I tend to think of people. It's like mm. they fit, like, these molds that yes. I, I make up, especially yes. with <laughs> teachers. But I, I yes. also, yeah, have always loved thinking. I love learning from my professors about their personal lives, which is funny to see, like, some professors really are comfortable talking about that and others right. are not. Um, but I think it's fun to sort of hear, like, how they got here and, like, who they are outside of their academics and why are they passionate about what they are. I think that has been an absolute theme in this podcast hmm. is that students say, I'd like to know more, or I enjoy knowing so much yeah. about the path that um, that people took to get here. And we got to have a really lovely chat about that because we were on a dock at the Coastal Studies yeah. Center um, doing that, that during the retreat. So we got to lie in the sun and do that while yeah. people were running around that we were that we were responsible for um all right so what do you wish your professors knew about you well this all relates because I think I think what I wish my professors knew about me and I hope they do is that I'm a good listener um 
that I really, I am not always the most talkative person in a class, but I'm always paying attention. Um, and I really value what they say. I don't know. I think I have this worry sometimes that professors don't realize like how much their students value them or respect them. Mm. Um, Do you think that in terms of that the professors don't feel validated or that they don't realize how much weight their word carries and what they do? I think more the latter. Yeah. Um, that, you know, I think, I think I'm becoming better at being critical of things that my professors tell me or articles they give me to read. Um, but, you know, I probably admire my professors and more than any other like more than most people in my life, like they just really have a special place for me. And I think that I, yeah, I want them to know that I really value what they say. And, and some of that comes with, you know, I want to hear what they think I should work on and what, um, and I, I really enjoy that, uh, that personal aspect of my relationship with professors. But I, I just, yeah, I think that they just have so much power over me and I think a lot of students here right. in terms of just the ability to inspire us or encourage us or push us in a new direction. Um, but also that even if you're not the most outspoken person in class doesn't mean you aren't passionate or caring or something like that. I absolutely think that that is true. I have to tell you that there are students where I can't read them at all. Really? Yes, and that there is, they'll sit with a somewhat impassive face you know mm. that and yeah and I th and I read that often as disinterest or sometimes even all the way to disgust right yeah <laughs> and and um I have become better the longer I have been here at just knowing that my interpretation of what I'm seeing is not always accurate mm -hmm. and so I need to ask instead yeah. of interpret based on um, sort of expression or body language because mm -hmm. sometimes what I might be interpreting as um, someone who's just sort of removed themselves from right. the scene is actually someone who's having a big shift yeah happening that Absolutely. and in the midst of that shift they're sort of paralyzed almost mm -hmm. with thought yeah no I agree I think I <laughs> I, I think I I like to say that I make ugly listening faces sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> oh like and I, I'm is really... that is that a is that a um sort of modifier on RBF what's RBF oh right oh okay I know it resting bitch face. Yes. Um, I don't think I, I think I, not quite there, but I think sometimes like Wait, when I'm listening, I'm just like making weird faces or like I'm, yeah. I look, I think sometimes I might look dazed when I'm just like thinking about something. <laughs> um, so I'm always worried that my professors think I'm like talking <laughs> out or something like that, but I, I'm, I'm just making my ugly listening faces. That was a, a term my drama teacher in high school always used when you're like, pretending to listen as an actor, you make ugly listening faces. <laughs> well, I would take your ugly listening face anytime, and I hope <laughs> that other people listen to this podcast with their ugly listening faces on, too. So oh. thanks so much for talking Thank to you, me. Thank you, Doris. This is so nice. <laughs>